So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 20 this morning. Genesis 20 is another lesson showing the infirmity of humanity, even the righteous, and the grace of God. We're introduced here to an incident that occurred shortly after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we meet a heathen king who appears to be more righteous than Abraham, who is guilty of repeating a sin that threatened the promise of God. Back in chapter 12, you remember that Abraham deceived the Pharaoh of Egypt by presenting his wife Sarai as his sister. Since she was barren, Abraham had no children and thus no way to fulfill the promise that he would become a great nation and the father of many nations. He was also outside of the promised land when that happened with no indication that God had led them uh, to that place. The Lord miraculously intervened to retrieve Abraham from his self-inflicted calamity. Now that incident occurred about 25 years earlier than the present one. And we would think that Abraham learned a valuable lesson from that occasion, that he would trust the Lord to preserve and protect him in order that God's promise would come to pass. And we've seen evidences of growth in his faith as he walked with God. And now Abraham has even more reason to exercise his faith since God has sealed his covenant with Abraham and Sarah, promising that they will have a child within a year's time. But when they move to Gerar, they repeat the same ploy that they think will keep Abraham safe instead of trusting God. The main point is that even when our faith fails, even when we repeat old sins that jeopardize our relationship to the Lord, he is merciful and gracious to us. Our failures cannot thwart his purposes. They cannot nullify his promises to us. God will continue to intervene on our behalf and protect and preserve us. But we must not assume that our lack of faith or that our sinful actions will not cause us much trouble and tribulation. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we're grateful for the life of Abraham, uh, the first patriarch. We're thankful, Lord, for his faith, for his trust in you, and the growth of faith that we've seen in his life. But Lord, we know that just as Abraham failed, uh, we fail too in many ways. And uh, even though we fail, we know that you are faithful to us, that you will never fail us. And Lord, you'll even bail us out of situations that we get ourselves into because of sin. We're thankful, Lord, for your love for us in that way. At the same time, we pray you would help us not to enter into temptation and fall to it. And we just pray, Lord, your blessing as we look at your word today. Help us to learn from it and grow by it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we look at verses 1 and 2 this morning of this chapter, and we see a repeated sin that threatens God's promise. 
And we're told here in verse 1 that Abram migrates to a place called Gerar. And shortly after the destruction of the cities of the plains, this uh, happens. He moves to an area that's called the Negev, the south uh, portion of the land of Canaan, not quite down to Egypt. This is southeast of Hebron where he's been living. Uh, And we're not given a reason for his move. Uh, It could well be that the pasture land around Hebron was uh, running scarce, was being depleted, and he needed to find new grazing lands. Some have suggested that he uh, went toward Gerar because that was a very wealthy uh, city, and he may have had uh, business uh, enterprises he was interested in. Uh, That was on a trading route going north and south along the Mediterranean Sea. But for whatever reason, he stayed there, he sojourned there, And uh, that indicates to us that he wasn't going to take up permanent residence. He's still in the promised land. So there's no real indication that this move was outside of God's will. However, we find that Abraham resorts to an old deceitful ploy. While he is there, he perceives that the fear of God is not in this place. Verse 11. So he once again fails to believe the Lord can protect him here or wherever he goes. So in this new residence, he and Sarah return to an old scheme of telling people that Sarah is his sister instead of his wife. And he believes that this slight deceit in his mind will deliver him from being slain so someone uh, can take Sarah as his wife. Now, at this stage in his life, it's difficult for us to understand his reasoning, especially because we've seen such great feats of faith in his life to this point. But we have to be reminded that we too often repeat the same sins over and over. We know better, but we still have uh, failed in many ways to keep God's word. So we need to be careful that we're not too harsh and self-righteous over Abraham's faulty thinking and lack of faith because we're often guilty of the same kind of things. But his ploy, as uh, it did not help him in Egypt, doesn't help him here either. We find in verse 2 that a man who is a king, the king of Gerar, and the surrounding territories that uh, later became known as uh, Philistia, uh, Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem. And uh, Abimelech, we're going to run into that name as we continue our studies in Genesis, is a royal name, not necessarily a personal name, and it applied to Philistine rulers, and it means my father is king, Uh, which kind of connects him to the idea of of reigning. Now, Sarah at this time, we know, is around 90 years old. But God has given a promise that they will have a child. So God, in some way, must rejuvenate her body so she'll be able to bear the son of promise. And that could have turned the clock back a little bit as far as her uh, personal appearance goes. Um, But also it's possible that still at this age, she dies at 127, she still has some of that 
external beauty. It's possible also that uh, Abimelech wants to make an alliance with Abraham, who was very wealthy. I'm sure he learned that because he brought all his flocks and herds and household with him, and it might have been for that purpose that he wanted her in his harem. But whatever his reasons, this posed a huge threat to God's promise to Abraham. Now, we do not know Sarah's condition at this time. It's possible that she may already have conceived Isaac, but if that was the case and Isaac was born into the home of Abimelech, people would assume he was uh, Abimelech's child, and at any rate, he would be raised in the home of a foreign and heathen king. If not, Sarah, of course, would be violated and the marriage bond broken between her and Abraham. And if she's now able to bear a child and a son came from Abimelech, well, that's even worse. So either way, the situation proved perilous to God's covenant with Abraham. And one commentator makes this uh, thought, great acts of faith are often bounded by failings and fears. And again, Abraham fears for his life, for the sake of, of Sarah. We're not exactly sure how he brought himself to that point. Uh, but as it was with Abraham, so it is with us. But God is faithful to intervene and deliver his people from predicaments that they put themselves into. So let's see what transpires from this point. In verses 3 through 7, the God of Abraham intervenes to preserve his promises. And he comes to Abimelech and he confronts him in a dream. Now this is the first time we have uh, this uh, concept of God personally revealing himself to a foreign king, a heathen. And throughout the narrative, uh, you'll find that the name God, Elohim, appears until the last verse. And this is the name that is used for God in relationship to non-covenant people. The Lord communicates with Abraham, or excuse me, Abimelech, through this dream. Now, his warning to the king is stark and stern. And he says in verse 3, Indeed, you are a dead man. So imagine uh, that you're in that kind of situation. You have a dream, a divine being, a God, says to you, you're a dead man or a dead woman. That wouldn't be a dream to me. That would be a nightmare. And he goes on to say exactly why this is the case. What is the reason for the stark revelation? Well, Abimelech has taken another man's wife. Uh, the Lord says, uh, the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. It's apparent that in the ancient Near East, of course we know that in the eyes of God this is a sin, but even in the ancient Near East, in that time, there's evidence that this was a, a largely viewed as a capital sin, as something that you didn't do. Uh, and we find that 
as we read the text here, it seems to be heinous in the eyes of Abimelech, and he calls it in verse 9 a great sin, which would be the sin of adultery. Uh, right now, it's kind of in the contract stage, but if he had relationships, then it would become this great sin that would affect not only Abimelech, but his whole nation, his whole territory. Now, unlike the Sodomites, who were more than willing to commit this kind of sin, and even worse, Abimelech seems to be appalled by the Lord's accusation. And this displays to us the premium that God puts upon the marriage relationship all the way back in the book of Genesis and really back to the very uh, first and second chapters as he establishes this relationship. In God's eyes, it is holy, it's sanctioned by him, and those who break the bond are worthy of death. Now put that into modern day context. Ancient civilizations put us to shame today because in our society, the marriage bond is often violated by adultery, and we're getting to the stage now where nearly as many people live together without marriage as people who do get married. And so God's judgment really is on that no matter how loose our society becomes. And we as God's people need to be obedient to God's word and not violate this concept we find all the way back in the book of Genesis. Now, as the story goes on, Abimelech appeals to his innocence. Verse 4, Abimelech had not come near her. In other words, he hadn't consummated the marriage. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? So uh, he appeals to the righteousness of the Lord. Now, he addresses God here as Lord. This is not the same term which... Abraham addressed the visitors who came to him in chapter 18, which is a name for the true God, Lord. This is a slightly different word that is used, it can be used of of gods, it can be used of rulers, it can be used of men who are superior in station than you are, but it's not necessarily a name for God. The uh, Philistines came from the line of Ham, and the Hamites uh, were either people who defied God, like uh, Nimrod, or people who became polytheistic in their religion. So it's very likely that this man, Abimelech, does not exactly know who this divine being is. He recognizes it as a superior being, a god, little g, but not necessarily the Lord God of Abraham. But at any rate, this divine being comes to him, makes this accusation, and the king uh, wants to establish his innocence. And he says here, uh, all right, uh, assuming that this divine being is righteous, 
You won't uh, slay a righteous man and his nation. Now, he's extending the same thing's going to happen to his nation uh, this, that, that hasn't done anything wrong or has done something that he was innocent of. <clears throat> so he goes on to say, did he not say to me, she's my sister? And she, even she herself said, he's my brother. So both of them said the same thing, making him think, well, then she would be free to, to be married to. And they don't uh, stop him. And he says, in the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. So uh, Abimelech took another man's wife unaware of the marriage bond. He did this in his integrity, which speaks of the uprightness of heart. He doesn't do it purposely. And being innocent is having clean hands, uh, which refers to behavior free from guilt. So it seems Abimelech would not have done this if he had known otherwise. And this shows us that Abraham's assessment of the people of the land may have been inaccurate. If only he had trusted the Lord, his whole mess could have been avoided. Now, despite the fact that Abimelech did this innocently, ignorantly. The Lord still demands restitution and intercession to avoid judgment. And the Lord conveys to us his sovereign knowledge of what's going on in verse 6. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this and the integrity of your heart. It wasn't purposeful. It wasn't defiant. For I also withheld you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. So the Lord's aware of Abimelech's integrity. He knows that he was duped and he was unaware of the whole truth of the situation. And because of that unawareness, God made sure Abimelech did not touch Sarah in that marriage relationship. And it seems that the Lord may have sent some type of physical disability to prevent this from happening because in verse 17 it says the king and his household were healed which seems that God sent some kind of a plague on them so it was not the king's lack of interest uh, or desire to do this but God's divine intervention saving the purity of Sarah He steps in and he prevents any sinful action from taking place. But even though the king took Sarah unwittingly, he's still held accountable for his sin. Ignorant sin is still sin. And even though they were not uh, uh, committed purposely, God demands that the situation be returned or rectified Uh, He needs to give Sarah back, and um, he needs to seek intercession from Abraham. And he mentions here, first time we find it in the Bible, that Abraham, in verse 7, is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. So there's a need of intercession. Abimelech cannot get Uh, out from God's decree of death unless he gives Sarah back 
and he appeals to Abraham to pray for him, and that intercession to God is what will save him. And God goes on to say, if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So he does have a choice. But if he makes the wrong choice, he's a dead man, like God said he was. It's only through intercession that forgiveness can be obtained. And this is kind of a picture of Christ's intercession on our behalf. His sacrifice provided the payment for all our sins, those done on purpose and those done in ignorance or without our knowledge. And it's by this gracious act that we are delivered from death, just like Abimelech will be. So a choice is given to him. If you want to be healed, you want to be forgiven, you've got to restore Sarah. You've got to seek the gracious intercession of Abraham, God's prophet, and you'll be saved. You'll be delivered from this situation. Well, we find that Abimelech now confronts Abraham and obeys God in verses 8 through 16. Now take a look here at verse 8. Abimelech and his household demonstrate a healthy fear of God. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were very much afraid they were terrified. So the king doesn't ignore the revelation of God to him. First thing in the morning, he gets his family together, he explains to them what God had told him in the dream, and this strikes fear in their hearts, as it should. Now, we need to understand that the fear of the Lord is not necessarily the same as the fear, excuse me, the fear of God is not necessarily the same as the fear of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The fear of God is a a general expression, something required of all people. Everyone uh, should fear God. Not a God, but the true God. And this reflects moral standards known through human conscience that God has really put into us. And it's reflected often in the laws of men. These are accepted out of fear of judgment. What these men feared was the judgment of God. And that's the kind of fear everyone ought to have that God someday is going to judge them. That fear ought to turn them to the fear of the Lord, which is a fear which is uh, uh, trusting God as the Savior of men. But the fear of, the, of, the, of God, it doesn't necessarily mean you believe in God and you trust God in, in his salvation, but you're afraid of what God can do to you. And that's what these men are exercising here. Now, Abimelech, in the next few verses, as he confronts Abraham, accepts his accountability, but also we can see he's pretty upset with Abraham in the way that he expresses himself. And verse um, 9, Abimelech called Abraham, said to him, what have you done to us? Now that's almost the same thing that Pharaoh said when he found out that Sarah was Abraham's wife. 
And if you remember back in the first part of Genesis, that's what God said to Adam and Eve when they sinned. What have you done? What in the world is going on? And he goes on to say, what have I done to offend you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? So he's confessing that what he has done is a great sin and that it would have its effect not just upon himself, but on uh, his whole nation, which really kind of depended upon him as, as related to him. So he's very upset with uh, Abraham because not only is he culpable of this sin, even though he was ignorant of what was going on, the situation is what it is because Adam, or excuse me, Abraham and, and Sarah were the instigators of the action. They lied. They hid the truth. So now he's going to give Abraham an opportunity to uh, respond and explain himself. Verse 10. What did you have in view? What did you have in mind? What were you thinking that you have done this thing? So Abraham now has the opportunity to defend himself. And in the passage, the Lord does not directly rebuke Abraham. Matter of fact, by the end of the chapter, the Lord actually blesses Abraham. But he seems to use King Abimelech to rebuke him. Now, Abraham's response really is kind of feeble. And it conveys to us uh, his perhaps sense of foolishness and what he has done. And especially when you think of the previous protections of the Lord, his fear of death was unreasonable, and now he finds out that, well, he didn't have any reason to believe that anyways. So it reveals to us a, review, a reversion to mistrust or lack of remembrance how the Lord can deliver us in a time of need. And it also explains uh, the whole situation between the ploy that Abraham and Sarah came up with. Abraham says, because I thought, how many times do we say that when we get in trouble? <clears throat> I thought this, I thought that, and we speculated and we assumed and it wasn't the right thing. So Abraham says, well, I thought that surely the fear of God is not in this place. Well, he really didn't have any reason to believe that. Now, if they were polytheistic and they had some idols in different places, yes, they weren't fearing God in the way that you know, Abraham feared God. But he finds out that, well, the fear of God was in them when they got threatened by this whole situation, and they probably would have done the right thing in the first place. So his thinking wasn't really correct, and he goes on to say, well, they're going to kill me on account of my wife. So to avoid committing adultery, we're going to commit murder, and we're going to take your wife to ourselves. Now, that's the way he was thinking. But that's not necessarily what was, would have transpired. But it's the same idea. And apparently, if you look down at verse 13, 
Uh, when, I, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place wherever we go. Say of me, he's my brother. So this was back in Haran when they went down to Canaan in the first place. He's not really fully trusting God in this area of his life. He learns that he can, but then years later, he reverts back to that old uh, ploy when he really shouldn't have. So we have an explanation here of how this all came about, and the agreement really went way back to Haran. He goes on to say in verse 12, well, I wasn't really telling, you know, a lie. Uh, She is my sister because she's uh, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Well, it's a half-truth, and he used it for the purpose of deceit. He wasn't being fully honest in that situation. Now, we may wonder, well, uh, we'd never do that now. It's against the law to do it now. But back then, that was before the law, long before the law. It was something acceptable in that society, and it kind of kept the family units together that you're not going outside of the broader family. Uh, And, of course, later on in God's law, this became forbidden. But at this time in history, uh, it was an acceptable practice. Now, when we think about this whole situation, it's a sad day when a heathen has to rebuke a saint. A Christian should be above reproach in the world so as not to bring reproach upon the Lord. Uh, For instance, the New Testament exhorts us to be at peace with all men as much as possible, and we should avoid feuds and disagreements uh, and, and not just for our own peaceful existence, but as a good testimony to the Lord. And that's what the repeated term in the New Testament, blamelessness, means. It means that nobody can rightfully and truthfully accuse you of wrongdoing. Now, they can lie and say that, but truthfully, they shouldn't be able to do it. And if we do get caught in an error like this, we certainly should be apologetic and we should repent and tell that person so. But we should have uh, a testimony that's above reproach as we walk with the Lord. Now, Abimelech then displays his fear of God through obedience in verses 14 through 16. And his obedience is uh, displayed in three actions, restitution, invitation, and vindication. So first of all, we see restitution. Uh, Abimelech, it seems, accepts this um, weak apology on the part of Abraham, and he took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. So just like uh, Pharaoh gave all kinds of stuff to Abraham to leave, and uh, probably uh, as a dowry, for Sarah, Abimelech gives all these gifts to him, and he restored Sarah, his wife, as God said that he should too. So, so this is uh, restitution for the wrong that he did, even though he didn't do it intentionally. He is still giving restitution. Then, in verse fifteen, he invites Abraham to live anywhere he chooses in Abimelech's kingdom. See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. 
so there was no determined boundaries back at that time, but he would have controlled and owned, in a certain sense, uh, this region of Canaan. But by granting this to Abraham, it shows his deference to Abraham as a prophet of God, puts him at least on an equal level with himself. And so Abraham is growing in prowess among the nations as well as growing in rights to the land. So God is using this again to fulfill his promise to Abraham. The last thing we see here is vindication in verse 16. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Now that's a significant amount of money back in that time. Uh, I read one commentary where it said it would take a a man uh, with a monthly wage who was a laborer 167 years to make that kind of money. Uh, Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. So he was giving that huge sum to show everybody involved who knew this situation that there had been no violation uh, upon Sarah, that she was pure, that they had not come together, that this whole thing was done innocently. And so in the eyes of the people, she would be vindicated, justified, and still have the purity that was true of her. However, it was also a kind of a rebuke. Uh, Abraham and Sarah knew this was not a fully honest plan of defense. And the grace of God is really being manifested to them. They don't deserve to have all these gifts given to them. And it's only through the grace of their covenant God that the situation has been reversed. They've been saved and they have not violated his his promises and, and God's ensured that the promise will move forward. So it's only through the grace of, of the Lord that uh, they're delivered in this situation that they got themselves into. Uh, only God can get them out and he's gracious by actually benefiting them in it all. So this conveys to us that all we have in Christ is not our doing. It's not because Abraham and Sarah did something right. It's because of God's grace. And it's only by God's grace that guilty sinners receive the gifts of forgiveness from sin, eternal life, the indwelling spirit, all the other spiritual benefits of salvation. Well, the chapter closes with Abraham's intercession, which results in Abimelech's healing in verses 17 and 18. So, after all this, Abraham does pray to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. So the plague has something to do with fertility, It prevents the women from uh, being able to have children. And in some way, it affected Abimelech uh, involving his own fertility. We don't know exactly what, but we can assume it was probably some type of a plague. And uh, uh, Abraham's prayer of intercession moves God to rectify the condition. And it indicates the women are healed as well as Abimelech. 
and it seemed that some kind of deadly affliction directly touched him so he could not touch Sarah. And we assume that through intercession, there was forgiveness and healing. So obedience eventually led to blessing and fertility upon Abimelech. And God said, if you respect Abraham as a nation, as a country, then God will bless you. And we find that happening here. Now, God has the power, obviously, to open the womb, to close the womb. So this provides the setting now for the next chapter when we see that uh, Isaac comes on the scene as God opens up Sarah's womb. And we see here that the prayers of the saints often benefit the lost. We don't know the heart of Abimelech. We're not sure if he ever exercised saving faith in Abraham's God. On this occasion, he obeyed and was benefited from it. Uh, So he had a powerful impetus to put his faith in God. Of course, if he didn't do this, he would have died. So uh, Abimelech, we're not sure what happened to him. Now, previously in the stories of Genesis, all those who disobeyed God perished or were severely judged. We remember the, the, the flood story, the judgment on the nations and the cities of the plain. All these people defied God. They paid dearly uh, for doing that. But the prayers of the saints do benefit those who are lost. Uh, how many have overcome an illness, come through an operation, escaped the threat of death, or had other good outcomes in life because God's people were praying for them. Then we have to consider again how Abraham's intercession reflects that of Christ. He showed compassion for the city of Sodom, which deserved complete destruction, by pleading with God to save the city, to spare it just for ten righteous souls. He also prays for Abimelech, who has obeyed God on this occasion, and perhaps this foreshadows to us the obedience of future Gentiles coming to Christ, who intercedes for all those who call upon him for salvation. Well, Abraham was a great man of faith, but still he failed on some occasions to believe that God could protect him and provide for him. And like him, our faith also can fail. We can fall into sin. We can mess things up. But God is gracious to forgive us and continue to bless us in spite of those failures. His promises to us cannot fail because they're not based on our works before we get saved or after we get saved. They're based on his grace, his mercy, and his power. However, as his people, we should never presume these benefits are unconditional or assume that we can get away with our sin. Abraham and Sarah were rebuked here in this situation, uh, not directly by God, but by people who were heathen because of their failure. So we should endeavor every day to walk with the Lord in obedience through the guidance of his word and the power of his spirit. Heavenly Father, we are thankful again for the instruction you give us in the lives of the Old Testament saints. 
<clears throat> Lord, we uh, don't always understand why they did what they did, but Lord, uh, we, we often do the same kind of thing. So we're thankful for your mercy and your grace and forgiving us. And uh, Lord, uh, we pray you'd help us not to fall into temptation, but when we do, Lord, to make amends and do it uh, quickly so that we won't have to face your chastisement. Lord, we uh, pray you'll help us to be marked by uh, the qualities of obedience, of praying for others, and Lord, for uh, being quick to confess our sins when it's necessary. Use these thoughts, Lord, to help us grow in our grace. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name, amen.